Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Rachel Bloom, loves musical theater. And not just the good stuff. I can't choose that, like, I love musical theater, even when, like, I know the lyrics could be better, or even when, like, the emotion for this isn't earned, or even when it feels kind of paint-by-numbers. Like, a big orchestral swell or, like, a bunch of people tap dancing, it makes me smile. Fair enough. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Rachel Bloom, who won a Golden Globe earlier this year for her show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She'll tell me why she relates to Rebecca Bunch, the character she plays on the show. As someone who let love throughout my life made me feel powerless, disenfranchised, crazy, obsessed, the opposite of empowered, I really connected with the premise, and I didn't care, like, if it was PC or not. To me, it felt truthful. I don't care if, like, oh, but that's not, like, a likable character. Like, I don't, it's true. She and I will talk about what the musical elements bring to her show, what she's done to gain confidence in the television industry, and what it takes to get an enormous pretzel off the ground with her sitting in it. It's so funny because you write in a script, she sits in a giant pretzel and it hoists her to the sky like she's Betty Boop sitting on the moon. And it's like, okay, so we're going to need $40,000 to lift the pretzel in the air. We're going to need stuntmen to strap you into the pretzel. Like, it's so easy to just, like, like, write it down, and then all of these things have to happen. Plus, Esperanza Spaulding will tell us about a piece of music that helped her realize the joy in facing challenges. And I'll tell you about a dumb movie that I love. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Rachel Bloom won a Golden Globe, she seemed legitimately shocked. Not just because she beat, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and everything. Also because her show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, is on the CW. And about a million people watch it, which is a lot, but not for network TV. And also... I'm guessing because her show is is kind of weird, or at least unusual. For one thing, it's a musical, two songs an episode. For another, it's a romantic comedy that's shockingly honest about feelings. I mean, right from the start, the theme song has a refrain about her being broken inside. It's also honest about gender. This track is about getting ready for a date. It's called Sexy Getting Ready Song. A first I make everything shining smooth. Oh, yeah. Cause I want my birthday to be so soft for you. I'm gonna make this night one you'll never forget. Cause boy, I know you like an hourglass in a Let's see how the guys get ready. It's the sexy gun ready song. The sexy gun ready song. A fluffing and flouncing, giggling and ladying. The sexy gun ready sound. Rachel Bloom, welcome to Bullseye. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I hope that I didn't. That was my best impression of like 
what I would sound like if I was on public radio. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Do I really sound different no, you when don't. I'm on public you, radio? Well, you well in the opening you suddenly like went into into radio voice, but now you're just talking. That's what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to have announcer voice when you're reading something. It went a little lower. I feel like you're accessing. It's not like you're faking anything. It's like you're accessing more of a base. Oh, that's my theater training. More of a Fraser Crane. I'm supporting my diaphragm. There you go. I found my resonance. Ha. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. (laughs) Rachel Bloom, for the benefit of our radio audience, knows that in order to find your resonance, you put your hand on your chest, Uh, then go through your entire uh, register from from high to low uh and find where you feel the most vibration. There you go. Where'd you go to school? the center of your voice. I went to School of the Arts in San Francisco, high school. Ooh. Where'd you go to school, Rachel Bloom? I grew up in California, went to public high school here, and then I went to New York University. One of the things about... Uh, crazy ex-girlfriend that is so great. And there's a, a lot of them. I'm a big fan of the show. Hey, thanks. No problem. Is that it is very specific about Southern California in a way that Southern California is rarely seen specifically in film and television. Like there's so much Southern California in film and television. Yeah. But so little of what most of Southern California is. Well, most people who live here and are in entertainment, nine times out of ten, have come from the East Coast. So they have a very, like, you know, recently moved to Southern California, uh, probably moved here with a job to seek success. They have a very specific view of it. Um, I grew up here similarly feeling like an outsider, but I was born here and grew up here the whole time wanting to be on the East Coast, but, like, being kind of stuck here. And so... When I think of Southern California, I don't automatically think, like, the industry I'm in. I think about my childhood and, like, my parents being cold in restaurants. <laughs> and, like, and just, like, when when my mom orders a taco, just being like, how spicy is the sauce? And the waitress being like, I mean, I don't know. It's, like, spicy. And she's like, I don't – I can't eat the spicy sauce. Like, my just my family's not they're east coast people who like are living a mile away from the beach but also i think that it is a specific type of suburbia the show is set in west covina yeah um and you know the suburbs of southern california uh, many or most of them are the home of a lot of the kind of ethnic and cultural diversity of southern california and yeah. so you know, somebody might think of uh, recent Chinese immigrants living in a Chinatown in a city like San Francisco or New York or Seattle. And here in Southern California, they live in a few towns east of Los Angeles that are as suburban as any other, only all the signs are in Chinese. Even more so, like you go to the mall in West Covina and it's truly mixed. I mean, it's it's such a melting pot. You know, I think that L.A. city proper is 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 very like segregated. Um, a lot of it's been gentrified. But in the suburbs, you get kind of like a colorblindness that you don't get in the city, but still like cultural traditions. I mean, you know, a lot of the great restaurants in West Covina are like Chinese, Korean, Filipino restaurants. But like, I mean, we say it's like people of all cultures going to the same Applebee's like it's this like freshness and this newness where the kind of utopia of it is like everyone gets along and no one really cares like what your background is because like it's cool we're all Californians 
Uh, but that's not actually that real. I mean, the, that's sort it's, of what the show that's is like, about. That's like, that's like the utopia of it. Obviously, like, it's a lot more nuanced than that. But the idea of portraying the true diversity of a Southern California suburb and also, like, what real Southern California is like as opposed to, like, the Hollywood version or, like, rich people by the beach, um, that's what we're going for. I, I want to play a song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. This song is called West Covina. And the context is that my guest Rachel Bloom's character has moved from New York to Southern California ostensibly because she got a great job offer in West Covina. That's not the case. She's telling herself it's because she just needs a fresh start. She's actually in a weird kind of love with an ex-boyfriend from middle school summer camp. Um, And that love is probably a cover-up for deeper emotional issues. Uh, The song is sort of a tribute to the idea of what West Covina might be. West Covina Listening to that though, I was like, "Oh, I love it." Why do you love it? I love that song because that's a full. I think it's like a thirty-something piece orchestra, and like, I went from doing like music videos on the internet to like getting to write a song for like a multiple-piece orchestra, and so I still love the lushness of that and that type of song. In many ways, that was something that I'd been that contrast of like glamorous versus reality is kind of the core of the show, and it was something I'd been wanting to do for quite some time. So I still love that song. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Rachel Bloom. She's the star and co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She won a Golden Globe for her performance in the show's first season. One of the biggest moments in that pilot is uh, you with just like a legion of extras and dancers below you getting hoisted into the sky on one of those giant pretzels that would be at a roadside pretzel stand, like an enormous 10-foot like a like a, the pretzel version of a giant donut. Yeah. Which is absolutely what you were talking about. Yes. Um but it's so funny because you write in a script she sits in a giant pretzel and and it hoists her to the sky like she's Betty Boop sitting on the moon and it's like okay so we're going to need $40,000 uh <laughs> to lift the pretzel in the air. We're going to need stuntmen to strap you into the pretzel. Like, it's so easy to just like bit bit like write it down and then all of these things have to happen. Almost every song in the show undercuts the expectations of the genre that it's presented in. Um, you know, they're not they, – that is on its face ironic, but they're not performed ironically or anything. 
How do you feel about watching the most unironic musical theater? And I don't mean like high art musical. I'm not talking about Sondheim here. I'm talking about middle brow, unironic, swelling choruses in musical theater. Um, (laughs) I have a really mixed relationship with it because on one hand, if you go on my, my iPhone there are some very mediocre musicals on there that I will listen to. I mean, I only listened to musicals solely until I was 20 years old. Um, so I'm still catching up to literally every other genre. Um, I feel it's mixed because when I got to school, I went to school to be a musical theater major. And one of the things that I realized was like, oh, so many musicals are bad. <laughs> like 70% of musical theater is like, not great. Um, and I started writing kind of simultaneously. I got on the sketch comedy group simultaneously with being a freshman musical theater major. And I began to like resent the cheesiness of the writing. But like it still brings like an unironic joy in me. There's this musical called Triumph of Love. Some of it's like great and other parts are like not great. But like it like elicits an emotion in me. That feels akin to a sexual orientation. (laughs) Like, I can't choose that, like, I love musical theater even when, like, I know the lyrics could be better or even when, like, the emotion for this isn't earned or even when it feels kind of paint by numbers. Like, a big orchestral swell or, like, a bunch of people tap dancing, it makes me smile. Were you listening to Evita or something when you were going through the emotional torment of adolescence and the rest of us were listening to Nirvana or equivalent? Yeah, I was listening to I was listening to Assassins, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, Last Five Years, Rents. That was a huge one. Rent was a huge one. Um, Thoroughly Modern Millie, there's this song called Forget About the Boy that I would listen to a lot. I mean, I, yeah, I would literally lock myself in a room, listen to show tunes and stare in the mirror and lip sync to them. Was that because you were doing what your character on the show does, which is to say so often she is presenting the face of happiness while being deeply and profoundly unhappy? I mean, it definitely was like an escape. It was a way for me to like explore different roles. I mean, in some ways, my character is, through the musical numbers, trying on different costumes. And I feel like that's, in many ways, what acting is. (laughs) Um, You're trying on different personas. But absolutely, it was an escape. And for many years, like, I had these kind of different parts of my personality that were, like, either really, really, really happy, like the part that, like, loved musical theater and Disneyland and escapism, and then, like, a really dark side that was, like, sad and anxious and wrote dark poetry and was like really interested in facts about serial killers and like the two rarely met um and then i basically i discovered sondheim sondheim and candor and ebb so sondheim assassins sweeney todd and then candor and ebb chicago cabaret the first time that like oh you have this kind of happy sounding music with very dark subject matter how did you resolve those two feelings within yourself or to what extent have you creating i think creating my own work and doing like a lot of therapy (laughs) um but i think as i've become more more secure in who i am and like proud of like my quirkiness and differences and i think that as you get older that becomes cooler and also now it's very cool to like be different and be kind of a nerd and like it's okay that i admit 
I'm really into musical theater. Uh, I, I've become okay with it, and I've learned to kind of almost exploit those idiosyncrasies and differences. I knew people, because I went to a theater high school, who aspired to a career in musical theater. And, like, aspiring to a career in entertainment is a fundamentally a road to pain and disappointment because no one actually succeeds at it. Um, and then succeeding at it turns out to really stink for a lot of people. But, like, um, but musical theater specifically is such a brutal aspiration because every 18-year-old who wants to be an entertainer wants to do musical theater because it's real fun to do. Oh, yeah. I love to be to be in musical theater. It's the funnest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and But the problem is that, you know, Broadway is like 10 shows at any given time. Yeah. <laughs> or like 14. I don't know how many are running. But, you know, it's like a total of like 300 jobs and then like six touring companies of whatever at that moment. It's very competitive. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't speak to that because there are also a lot of non-equity touring productions now. We're not going to get into the. We're actual, not going to get into the. We're act- not going to get into the actual math here. No, no, no. What let's let's talk at, about equity contracts and no. how. <laughs> what I'm trying to get at here, Rachel, is that when you're 18 and you go to theater school, you look around and you realize, oh, not only am I not the most talented person anymore, maybe I'm the 40th percentile most talented person mm-hmm. or the 30th percentile most talented person, and. Then you do the math and you're like, wait a minute, and 90% of these people are going to fail? Oh, that's exactly what happened to me is I got to school. Well, first of all, I went to school with swollen vocal folds, so my voice was kind of f***ed up. And I actually have bad acid reflux. Like right now, I I had a lot to drink last night, so um, I was in Portland with my husband. And uh, yeah, We know how it is when you're in Portland you know, with your you know, husband. You know, in Portland, you <laughs> get it. That's Portland, Oregon, folks. Um, and so I went to school feeling insecure about my voice, and then I ran into all these kids who were like more talented than I was. And I think that comedy was kind of my way of also escaping the expectations I had for myself because I had no preconceived notions about, like, I'm going to be a famous comedian. So I went into it being like, it's okay if I'm, like, not the best at writing sketch comedy. I just want to kind of, like, learn to be good at something that I don't pressure myself about. And that's how I got good at writing. But it was also a little bit how I escaped the pressure of, like, learning musical theater. And, And I feel like... It took me years to, like, come to terms with the fact it's okay to try your best and still not be the best. I think I was lazy sometimes so that I could say to myself, oh, I didn't get that part because I was, like, lazy. But, like, I could if I if I really wanted to, I could have gotten it. And in some ways, like, I mean, Rebecca's very autobiographical, but I also have, like, a lot of Greg in my personality. Um, and this is a part of me that, like, I feel like I cover, but, like, the slackeriness to kind of mask and protect myself, that was, I think, a lot of what I had in high school and college. And also, like, ADD. And also, like, depressed and not sleeping well. So there were a lot of things. Let's take a listen to one of the songs uh, that you recorded solo or solo-ish when you were making YouTube videos. Uh, It's called The OCD Dance. Oh, yeah. Okay, now step. Touch the wall, touch it again, touch it again, touch it one more time, touch it one more time, touch it again, otherwise bad things will happen. 
1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I remember when I pitched. I remember I was on the street in New York. I was filming like this, this like indie film in New York in 2012. And I remember being on the street calling my producer and co-writer, Jack Dolgen, who now writes on my show, and being like, I have this idea. And I pitched it to him, and he went, oh, that's a winner. That's our next video. And then we didn't make it until 2014, but I love that song. I can see how making things yourself is an escape from the pressure of asking other people for their approval and feeling like you might not do a perfect job. Oh, yeah. It's completely bypassing it. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you whether I relate to that or not. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is It is a classic way to avoid the part of, especially acting, where you basically have to ask permission the entire time because somebody has to give you a part. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Totally. Like, it's complete power. I mean, I see writing as freedom and power. Like, people say, oh, creating your own work, that's so hard. But, like, I see it as kind of the opposite. Like, oh, my God, I get a say over everything. And the fact that I co-created my show, I'm not afraid of making someone mad at me, like in interviews or like my social media. I'm in charge of my own brand. And so it feels so freeing to be able to do that. Yeah, creating my own work was always my way of convincing myself and and like comforting myself and being like, it's okay, you're talented. (laughs) Because there are a lot of times, I mean, like my first, the first writing staff I was on I was the youngest, I was the only girl, but more to the point, like, I was the most green, and everyone on the staff was, like, better than I was. They were more experienced, they were more confident, Um, and it was a very competitive room, and I felt really shitty about myself, and that's actually when I wrote some of my best songs, because I wanted to prove to myself, no, you're in this for a reason, you can still write it's always been my way of sidestepping rejection in some ways. I want to ask you about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Did I refuse you... to talk about that. Okay. I'm here to, I'm here to talk You're about... You're here to talk about your early work. I'm here to talk about my jeans line. Um... <laughs> We're here to talk about Stephen Sondheim some more. Yeah. Um, when you made this show, uh, the premise was your co-creator's idea. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. What did you think about the premise, which is essentially a woman chases love to the other side of the country... Uh, and quits her job and dumps everything. Well, we came up with that after the fact. I mean, we were sitting in a room. Her name is Elaine Brush McKenna, and she's great. Um, She saw my videos, and we're sitting in a room at CBS, and we're talking about, okay, what could be a good musical TV show for us to create together? And I was pitching all these ideas about show business, and she's like, no one cares about show business. (laughs) And she was like, what about this movie idea I have called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about... I mean, the highs and lows of obsession, I can't think of anything that lends itself better to to musicals. And when we came up with it, it it was always from a feminist perspective. It was always a romantic comedy. And as someone who let love throughout my life made me feel powerless, disenfranchised, crazy, obsessed, the opposite of empowered. So I really connected with the premise. And I didn't care, like if it was PC or not, to me it felt truthful. I don't care if like, oh, but that's not like a likable character. Like, I don't, I, it's true. And and I mean, it's it's something that very, very intelligent women 
who are unhappy do. Um, and men and women do it. Uh, we let the euphoria and the obsession of love take hold and cover up what's really going on in our lives. I think the presumption is that if you're going to call your show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it's going to be one of two things. One is a show where the titular crazy ex-girlfriend, a show from a male perspective where the titular crazy ex-girlfriend is the butt of the joke. Mm -hmm. The other is an ironic version of that, which is to say an ex-girlfriend who's not crazy at all. Um, I don't think anyone would expect that it would be a show from the empowered perspective of a woman who is a little bit out of her mind. Yeah. It's kind of a mix because, like, it's not like she's someone who's, like, it's taken out of context and she's like, oh, no, I didn't mean to stalk you. It's like, no, she's she's really like, And to me, she's somewhat of a bubbly antihero. I call her, like, a bubbly Walter White. Like, my co-writer says, like, the last kind of um, bastion of feminism is, like, being able to create female characters who are like, my character is not, you shouldn't do what she does. I mean, like, in I think she does certain admirable things. She's pursuing her happiness, but she's doing it the wrong way for the most part. And the idea of creating this antihero that's kind of truthful, that was always really cool to me. And I don't view television shows based on, like, whether or not I like the characters. I view them based on, like, if I understand them and I'm excited to see where they go next. And so, yeah, some of the stuff they do is bad, but, like, once you understand their nuances and depth, you're you're invested in their outcome. I'll continue my conversation with Rachel Bloom after a break. We'll talk about overcoming social anxiety and allowing yourself the freedom to be happy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and this message come from Anti-Records with Case Lang Veers, a new collaborative album by three phenomenal self-driven artists, Nico Case, Katie Lang, and Laura Veers. The women wrote all 14 songs and share lead vocals equally, sometimes even within the same track. Full of stunning harmonies and spellbinding rhythms, Case Lang Veers travels through aches and eras, torch songs and tributes to the undersung. Available now on CD, vinyl, and digital. Catch them live on tour this summer. Thank you for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app on your phone for exclusive bonus content from NPR's hit podcast, Invisibilia. Find the brand new season of Invisibilia, stories from your local station, and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest today is Rachel Bloom. She won a Golden Globe earlier this year for her role in the CW show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which she also co-created. You said that you had yourself experienced the kind of irrationality and maybe uh, insanity that comes with love. Um, Can you give me an example? Well, here's the boring thing. I've always also been very paranoid about seeming crazy. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of it was self-destructive and imploded. Like, I wouldn't stalk someone, per se. I mean, I would stalk them on Facebook, stalk them online. But I would never call them and be like, you love me, you love me. Because I was like, oh, then they'll think I'm crazy. I mean, that was me being, like, kind of just so self-hating. But, like, extreme depression, 
skipping class, not eating. I mean, I remember, like, I lost a ton of weight and looked really hot in college. And everyone was like, oh, my God, you look amazing. And I was like, thanks. I'm sad. <laughs> um, it was like just just the idea of it consuming for six months a year, like, my every waking moment. And I think the craziness was how I debased myself. You know, hooking up with someone who I knew was taking advantage of me just so I could be near to them for one more second and lying to myself even in my own diary. You'd see diary entries where it was like, oh, I just happened to be at this place because so-and-so was there. So funny. Whereas, like, no, I went out of my way to be at that place. I'm most ashamed of the way I treated myself than anything I outwardly did. I almost wish I could have thrown hot coffee in someone's face because I have a lot of that, like, pent-up rage that I've never gotten out. Like, I've never actually, like told anyone off who broke my heart I always um internalized it and was angry at myself you're on NPR right now do you want to tell anyone off who broke your heart (laughs) um I mean there's there are two people out there who here's the thing I don't think they're particularly happy so um Here's what I'll say to those people. You, well, it's two people in two very different situations. Here's what I'll say to the first person. I was 19 years old and you need therapy. And I understand and forgive you, but I'll And to the second person, I'll say, um, I was, I was 20 years old and, and needed therapy and you had the upper hand and you emotionally exploited me but I also emotionally knowingly emotionally exploited myself and I uh, and, and, and but also like I hope that you know you've found happiness what does it mean to emotionally exploit yourself um getting on a subway at 2 a.m like knowing that I was headed for unhappiness like treating myself badly I mean the person that I have valued the least for a lot of my life was myself. Um, when I first started dating my now husband, my husband and I have been together eight years. But when I first started dating him, we'd go on these dates. And I'd have a great time. And I'd put on a happy face. And then I'd go immediately back home and be like, oh, my God, he's going to find out. He's going to find out that you're not cool. He's going to find out that you're not good enough for him. And I would, like, literally go over every single point at which I felt like I the date. It all was internal. It was all this internal anguish. And I was never overly texting him. I was never like, um, oh, my God, how do you feel about me? Like, I was never doing, like, the quote-unquote, like, stereotypical overbearing girl thing. I kind of wish I had. But, like, I really, like, kept a lot of it bottled up. And then I remember it was six months in, and he'd already said he loved me, and we went to Shenandoah on our like our first trip together a, a park in Virginia and we went rock climbing and rappelling and I absolutely like ate it rock climbing like I'm not outdoorsy and I after that vacation I started to the anxiety started to fall away I was like okay if he can still love me while I'm slamming into a mountain <laughs> repeatedly and like being afraid of like everything outdoorsy then like maybe I'm in the clear but it was all internal do you feel better about those kinds of things now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It makes me much more secure in who I am. Because I'm not afraid of, like, seeming clumsy. Or I'm not afraid to be like, I don't know the strokes. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm I'm not afraid to be like, 
oh my god, have you heard this Angela Lansbury musical Pretty Bell? It's so bad and weird. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not afraid because like that's what writing and comedy they've given me the freedom to be weird in ways that like I've been weird my whole life, but now like it's almost like cool to be weird. And I don't know if that's just like me coming into myself or the culture or both. I I want to play actually a song from Crazy Ex Girlfriend yeah. that I think resonates with this theme. Uh, it's called Getting By. Oh yeah. And uh, the by is bi as in bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rachel's boss on the show realizes through the course of the first season that he's bi. He's uh, divorced uh, from a woman. And uh, and he falls for a guy and he thinks, well, maybe I'm gay. But then he remembers that he, you know, he likes women and he realizes he's bi. Um, And he's the sweetest guy um, who comes into his own through the course of the first season by kind of actually getting to know who he actually is and saying it out loud. And that's sort of what this song is. It's uh, from my guest, Rachel Bloom's show, uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. surprise but now i see that that's just me it's not like i even tried so if you ask me how i'm doing here is my reply i'm getting by i'm getting by oh yeah i'm letting my bad flag fly not gonna hide it not gonna lie i mean the thing that i like about that is that in taking the form uh roughly of a huey lewis song yeah um, and Huey Lewis has been on this show and is just every bit the delight that you would hope that oh, he great. might be. He's just the nicest, coolest guy. But uh, if you got a knock on Huey Lewis songs, they're mostly about how happy and comfortable he is. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. yeah, he's really chill. <laughs> like his biggest album was called Sports. You know what I mean? <laughs> he, it seems like that is the great theme of the show is these characters trying and usually failing to match their outside lives with their inside lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone wants to – a lot of our show is deconstructing stereotypes and Daryl's almost like somewhat aware of his stereotype at the beginning where it's like, oh, I'm the kindly bumbling boss. And then he's like, oh, no, there's something missing and there's a deep – sadness to me what is it and this song is him yeah reconciling his outer life with his inner life that's a great way to say it and finding the joy in that in the joy and honesty yeah i mean because your protagonist here she can't even get to the first of the multiple levels of lies that she's yes telling herself about her emotional life yeah she you know it's it's always one step forward two steps back with her because There's a point in the season where she was almost out of the woods. And when we end the season with her almost being set back so far, it's almost like pre-pilot emotionally. And so it's really great while she's going through those to see characters who actually do tangibly advance. And Daryl, you know, inadvertently, like, comes out as bi because he meets a guy through Rebecca. And so you see that Rebecca, even though she's not aware... A lot of the time, she's starting to affect people's lives and causing other people to seek their true happiness. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Rachel Bloom. She's the star and co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. How do you manage the tone of a show uh, that has a protagonist who is often so self-deluded that uh, one, and I'm just going to put it in the generic, one, while watching the show, sometimes feels like yelling at the screen, get your act together, lady. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say who one represents an abstract viewer of the show who really likes watching the show every week (laughs) and hosts a public radio show. I um, Yeah, I feel that a lot during the bus episode. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, oh no! This was you... an episode where she rented Her a party, party bus. bus to take everyone to the beach, which is this kind of mythical destination in West Covina because West Covina is is close enough to the beach, but only in an abstract sense. Yeah. In a practical sense, it is not close enough to the beach. No, it's not. Look, people from West Covina, we say two hours hours from the beach, and then they like write on the IMDb trivia page, like, no, it's 45 minutes. It's like, okay, sure. You know what? It's 45 minutes if you're driving to the beach at 3 a.m., sure. But the point here being that the beach represents this kind of mythical destination, right? Yes. And she rents this party bus to take everyone there but gets every part of the social interaction wrong. Yes. You know, it was originally an episode, and it was an episode pitched by two of our writers, Rachel Spector and Audrey Walkup. Shout out to you guys. And they pitched, why not do an episode in traffic? where you're headed for the beach, but you never get to the beach. And so it was originally this kind of almost like um, like almost like almost 60s farce, you know? And then we were like, okay, well, we want to almost do this, like, one-act play taking place in traffic. It always was an episode about temperatures rising and big things happening, but the party bus of it all added this layer of just sadness <laughs> and her being pathetic that I love, um, <laughs> that I really, really, that I really love. I, w- um, I want to play one more song from the show. Um, so it's a love triangle, this show, and some, I mean, it's a couple different love triangles. Yeah. But uh, one of the central ones uh, for the protagonist is that she is in love with this guy, Josh, who's a real sweet, uh, muscle bound doof. Um, and in kind of classic romantic comedy form, there is another guy who's maybe a little quieter and dorkier uh, who's friends with him who's named Greg. And it's subverted at every turn by the fact that Greg himself is dealing with actual issues. Yeah. He is not the kind of blank, handsome dork that a romantic comedy would love to present as an alternative. Yeah. And this song is a, is a ballad that he sings early on in the first season uh, to her, and it's kind of like a Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire type number, and it's called Settle For Me. When we're together, I feel so grand. My heart goes tippity-tap-tap-tap when I hold your hand. But I know there's another guy you fancy more. So, even though I'm not the one you adore. Why not? Settle for me, darling, just settle for me. I think you'll have to agree. We make quite a pair. I know I'm only second place in this game, but like 2% milk. Or say tan beef, I almost taste the same. 
So won't you settle for <laughs> He's like a real Broadway star, right? Oh, yeah. He's Hans in the movie Frozen, too. <laughs> now, honestly, he's Hans in Frozen. I feel um, like I'm just saying if I had my own musical comedy show, I think I would surround myself with people who were like Rex Harrisoning, <laughs> not people with like spectacular, not, not people from actual Broadway. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I mean, our cast is so talented, but it got it opens up the writing because you can create. I mean, we always wanted to do this something I, I've always been interested in, you know, this idea of a romantic song juxtaposed with like what real love is like or what real relationships are like. And the fact that you can do this, the pinnacle of romance, what I see as the pinnacle of romance, this kind of Cole Porter, 1930s Fred and Ginger song with someone who has an amazing romantic voice, but have him sing the worst things about himself um, was just such a treat to write. I mean, it was, it was so, it was, it was so fun knowing that like, Oh, this person can really execute that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, if you ask Greg to sing in real life, the character Greg cannot sing. I think, I mean, at some point we have to go to a karaoke bar and just expose that none of these characters can actually sing. Um, Rebecca has a horrible voice, and we heard her sing a little bit in the season finale. Like, she's not a singer. None of these people are singers. What is it? What does the singing mean to you in the show? If it isn't the characters singing, um, and it's not the kind of unalloyed, brassy, uh, good feelings that often come from a great musical theater number. Uh, Why is it that they sing? It's emotion, it's heart, it's earnest, um, it's earnest feelings of searching for identity. So even when um, the song's comedic and they're maybe like, they're singing kind of the opposite of the genre, it's still the character earnestly earnestly trying to express their emotions like Rebecca sings a song feeling kind of naughty which is kind of a Katy Perry I kissed a girl like song where she's saying like really messed up things but that's an earnest the whole episode she's been telling herself oh no I just want to be friends with this girl which is Josh's girlfriend Valencia and in this song for the first time she's like no I want to lock you in a basement and take over your identity but she's trying to say no but it's okay because I have like a cute girl crush and so it's the songs are like in some ways pure subtext, but still the characters are trying to view themselves with a societally acceptable lens. Um, or it's Rebecca viewing the character. I mean, Settle for Me is is Greg's voice, but it's Rebecca watching Greg. Whereas like a song like What'll It Be in episode six is purely Greg and purely how Greg sees himself and wants to see himself. So it's it's characters being honest, but also like seeing themselves at their in their purest, most ideal forms. I, I get the feeling that that conflict was, uh, and maybe still is to some extent, but certainly was a great conflict in your life. The idea that um, maybe uh, maybe at your most successful, you're just tricking people into thinking that you're okay. Uh, yeah. Although you know. This past year's been insane because I went from having a dead TV show to winning a Golden Globe. And it's been really interesting to, like, be honest with fans and on social media and stuff. And I'll give you, like, one of my favorite examples. Um, The other night, actually two nights ago, I did a concert at the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland. And 
I, I've been working hard on the show. I, like, only rehearsed the day of. I do these hour, hour and a half long sets that are mixes of music and stand-up. And some of the songs are songs from the show, other songs I've been doing for five years. And usually I'll rehearse the day before, but I didn't have time, so I rehearsed the day of. And I get on on stage, and I'm doing this musical number, I'm a Good Person, from the show. And I go up on the lyrics. Uh, there's a key change, and I have no idea what comes next. And I try to fake it, and then I go, stop, stop the music. I'm in front of... 500 people, 600 people, and I go, uh, the thing that I fear has happened. I've forgotten the words. And it was, like, really scary. And I mean, it's like the thing that you literally have nightmares about, like, not knowing what comes next. And the audience was so supportive, and they were like, do it, do it. And I was like, if I forget the words again, will you help me? And enough people knew the words to the songs that the next time I went up on a line... Uh, I went up the same part. They helped me through it. And it was just really cool to be transparent about the artistic process. And I'm not afraid anymore if I can just admit to the thing I'm afraid of. And that's why, like, I don't really have secrets as a person. I, I have boundary issues in that I have none <laughs> um, because I take away the fear of the thing by just admitting to the thing and, like, kind of owning it. You know, showing like, oh, my stomach isn't perfect or being like calling myself the thing and calling it out before someone else can call it out. And in a way, it's like it's giving up power, but also it's me taking back my power and being like, no, 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 you can't call me this name because I'm going to say it before you in some ways. But also it's being like, hey, we're all just people trying to get by on this earth and we're all just like trying to stay alive and let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Are you going to be okay when all of this inevitably collapses? Uh, God, I have no idea. <laughs> I have That's no, I have fair. no idea. I mean, yeah, man, I, I, uh, like, what are we talking about? Are we talking like Britney Spears breakdown or are we talking about just like it all fades? I don't know. You tell me. I mean, it's your life. Um, you're the one who's <sighs> with the constant stream of self critique deep inside. Yeah. I don't think I'm garbage. So, like, that's the thing is, like, I have a higher sense of self-worth than, like, I used to um, because I can now fully admit that I'm human. Um, I, again, I think, like, writing and creating my own work kind of prevents that, like, full feeling of collapse where it's like, okay, so I'm not getting work. I'll write a play and put it up. Like, there's always that safety of, like, the writing gives me freedom or I'll just go insane. Maybe I'll go crazy and it'll be hilarious. It's fun. It'll be fun either way. How about that? It'll be a ride. Either way, it'll be a Let's hoot. just hope I haven't procreated <laughs> when I go full craze. Rachel Bloom, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was really great to see you. Thank you for having me. Rachel Bloom is the star and co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on The CW. She's already got a golden glove for it. I don't think it's going to be her last award. She's real good in it. Uh, thanks, Rachel. Hey, thanks. After the break, Esperanza Spalding will stop by to tell us about the song that changed her life. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron, who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals. Blue Apron works with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. 
Get your first two Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash bullseye. Invisibilia, the podcast about the invisible forces that control human behavior, is back with a new season and a new co-host. On this week's episode, Hannah Rosen travels to Louisiana to explore a very unusual oil rig, and Alex Spiegel takes us to the Soviet Union, where a popular American restaurant led to an unexpected cultural revolution. You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Esperanza Spalding is known for making music that's at once beautiful and challenging. It may start under the broad classification of jazz, but it rarely ends there. Her songwriting has been met with critical acclaim and multiple awards, including four Grammys. Take a listen to the song One from her latest album, and you can hear why. I can't complain, but now in this quiet midnight mind, I faintly see. Esperanza Spalding, and we'll be talking about Petrushka, composed by Igor Stravinsky. Most artists want to be challenged, to be pushed, and not just to see what they're capable of doing, but to remind them why they do it in the first place. It's just, it takes a second sometimes to wrap your head around that. I remembered the experience of reading my bass part in the orchestra at Portland State University, and it really doesn't look terribly exciting, you know. Then the conductor counts it off. I hadn't checked out the music ahead of time. I was unprepared as usual. (laughs) And I was hearing these bass notes laid in at the most unexpected moments, like explosions from underground. like paralyzed almost. I was seeing like a world open before me that I didn't know existed. Like a world of sound, a world of phrasing. And it looked so straightforward. Like Petrushka, okay, weird, something Russian, interesting, and sort of like smacked me awake. That's what it felt like. Actually, that's really what the sensation was. Like, I'd be like, I give you a piece of paper, and there's four words written on it. Stone, alone, fears, decree. So you get this piece of paper, and someone says, I would like you to recite this in conjunction with some other folks. And you go like, oh, nifty, okay. Okay, oh, let's see if it's hard, if it's challenging, if it's like, oh, I think I have to get my mouth around. And they hand you the piece of paper, and you're like, oh, stone, alone, fear, decree, I got this. So then everybody else comes into the room and they start speaking. And it'd be like, how happy is the lonely stone? 
that rambles down the road alone and never cares about careers, whose exigencies never fears, whose coat of elemental brown a passing universe put on, an independent as the sun associates or glows alone, fulfilling heavenly decree and absolute simplicity. And it would be like that sensation that you have a little chart that tells you when to say the word, and then you drop your word in, and you get the meaning, and you're like, whoa, it's so ah, beautiful, Emily Dickinson. You know, it's, it's that sensation. So I'm looking at this chart that's just like, rest, 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 boom. Rest, 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 boom, boom. And when you look at it, it looks really simple. But as you're reading along in real time, the rest of this wash of glorious, futuristic, surrealist, magical, organic architecture, like, erupting up out of the ground around you. So, what I'm saying is, I saw it, it looked simple. I'd never heard the piece. Then I dropped in my stone alone fears and decree and heard the meaning of this composition and I was gobsmacked and completely turned inside out in a way where I was like I suck like stop being so wimpy and thinking of all this bull doo this is what I'm here for like this dude is right he's modeling what's possible if you don't be a little whiny wimp and work really hard and do magic and strive for magic. We're all students. Like, this is the hardest thing probably that we'd ever played together in an orchestra setting. And bless this conductor for having the patience (laughs) and endurance. to work with us on it, you know. As weeks go by, you start to hear how all the parts are actually meant to lay with one another and how their counterpoint works and how they interlace. And you, you start to understand more meaning in the writing. So you've been hearing this oboe part for like three weeks and it just sounds like, huh, that is random. Then once the string players do their part right in time and the percussion players do their part actually where it's supposed to go, you you hear what it does. And it's it's really magical. Honestly... It made me excited to go to orchestra rehearsal, which was huge. But it made me want to go and hear this music happen around me. I want to remember that lesson, the takeaway from that experience of being drawn into working based on joy, not like guilt or one day you'll be able to do something that you might like, so practice now even though you're not having fun. For me personally, and I think for a lot of music students, we're drawn to music because of the joy. And if we lose that in our studying environment, um, we might actually lose the joy of music. And that's ridiculous. So the visceral joy can be blocked for a lot of different reasons. Uh, about three years ago, three year and a half years ago, I realized it was blocked because I didn't have time to prepare myself. I wasn't having time to play and study and grow to find more in the performance. I was like limited to a physical ability, to instrumental ability, to a vocal ability, 
that I had maxed out. So, and I guess my, what that reveals is that I like to grow. I like to be challenged and be able to go further than what I found a week ago. So I shut the whole thing down. <laughs> so let's just stop it. Pull the plug. Manager by, agent by. Um, I'm going to go play and study and like the Petrushka experience. Make sure that I'm building whatever happens next off of the foundation of this is nourishing and viscerally enjoyable. And there's something in here for me to, to find every day. And I'm going to be able to be studying and practicing and exploring in a way that I can continually move more into the performance context. So I'm an improviser. And of course, music is a very, particularly instrumental music, is very abstract. You know, it's kind of symbolic. You're using sounds and textures and tempos and rhythms to convey thought, feeling, insight. So much of what I feel has to go into the music is experience and insights that are non-musical. <laughs> and you gotta have time in your life for that too. You know? So when I hear it, it's like listening to a great comedian or a great actor or a great writer that n- always goes where you didn't think they were going to go, and it's and it's perfect. It's like, huh, what? Ooh. You know, it throws you off, and you love it, you know. Mm. It's just like you, you bite an apple, and it tastes like the best lemonade ever. And it's like, what? Thank you. And somehow it, it is an apple, and it makes sense, and you don't even get it. And you, ugh, just think, this cultivator, you know, mm. <sighs> that was Petrushka. It landed in my life and changed me. That was Esperanza Spalding sharing the song that changed her life. You can find her latest album, Emily's De-Evolution at EsperanzaSpalding.com. Every week on the show, we like to close with a recommendation from me. I'm Jesse. It's The Outshot. There's nothing wrong with a silly movie. Look, I like broadcast news in the apartment as much as the next guy, maybe even more than the next guy. But sometimes you just want to see something ridiculous. That's where I was at the other day. Half a day off. It was a Monday morning. My wife and I bought some popcorn and a cherry Coke and laughed our rears off at a movie called Pop Star. Never Stop, Never Stopping. Now, I want to be clear. This is not an art film. This film is about 90 minutes of silly nonsense. There is almost no satire in it. Outside of a general theme of friendship conquering all, there's very little feelings. It is basically just a bunch of great, stupid jokes. I guess, theoretically, it's a parody of pop documentaries, and it's possible that I missed a few gags since I haven't actually seen any of those, or at least not any of them since, like, the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. But mostly, it's just an all-singing, all-dancing string of goofy goofs. Like this, the opening number, which is a bragging song that's called I'm so humble. I'm a superstar. I kick down the door. Got the money in the bells and I'm also so humble. 
this. My apple crumble is by far the most crumbleless, but I act like it tastes bad. That song seriously has a lyric that goes, I'm more humble than Dikembe Mutombo after a stumble left him covered in a big pot of gumbo. How could you hate that? The film's by The Lonely Island. It's basically a group project by the three of them. If you only know one of their names, it's probably Andy Samberg. He brought the trio to SNL. The three members of the group have stuck together for uh, quite a long time now, but only Samberg's a star. Actually, the film's structure follows their trajectory. Samberg, Yorma Tacone, and Akiva Sheffer play the three members of a boy band who are torn apart by Samberg's career success. Then, of course, by the end, reunited. In all their work, they've shown an affection for the culture of pop music, and maybe more importantly, an affection for each other. They've got enough smarts and sincerity to pull off white guy joke rapping, which is no small feat. And they have enough sweetness to pull off the disastrous joke single from the movie Finest Girl, parentheses, Bin Laden song. A freaky kind of girl kept up on current events from all around the world. More specifically, one event. The time Osama Bin Laden got shot in the head. She said, do me like that. But I couldn't track the metaphor. That said, I can see you horny like a stegosaur. That said, again, your request is so irregular. She put on a beard. I started looking at the exit door. Then a turban, then a tunic. She said, invade my cave with your special unit. I said he wasn't in a cave, but there was no stopping. She demanded- of course, a movie that is this goofy can sort of die on the vine. It basically has to be packed with good jokes. And Popstar is. Even the celebrity cameos. They appear as talking heads. Nobody hams it up. Not even Mariah Carey. At one point, the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan goes, the higher you get, the harder you fall. Ask any coconut. Which is perfect! I mean, ask a coconut. That would be good. Ask any coconut? That, my friends, is craft. Oh, and also there's a part where the uh, singer Seal gets attacked by wolves. Seal! Seal, come on, hurry! Are you okay? I'm fine for a second. Seal! Seal! Oh my God, you got him, dude! Don't worry, I've been in this situation before. I think I got these scars. From wolves? Now let's get out of here. Seriously, if you're not on board this movie by the time Seal gets attacked by wolves, I don't know, maybe it's not for you. And that's cool. But for me, playing hooky with a big bag of popcorn, Popstar is a home run. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci, production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadi and Exparello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas, the senior producer, Colin Anderson. Thanks this week to our pal Jennifer Marmer for engineering help. Our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. He also made an appearance at Max FunCon this past week. Thanks, Dan. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.